The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. Hello and welcome. This is the uh, latest episode of the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And my guest this morning is Dr. Doug, Dr. Douglas. He runs the Optimal uh, Bone Health uh, Clinic out of Asheville, North Carolina. It's a telehealth, telehealth service. So he reaches patients uh, across the nation. And he's going to talk to us all t- today about healthy bones and something I'm very helpful. I'm really interested in hearing about because I work a lot with older clients. And that is big among older people. So Dr. Douglas, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, this is a fun topic. So I look forward to kind of getting your take on what would be best for your listeners and for your uh, clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. So just so, I mean, I already kind of gave people a little bit of a window into what we're going to talk about, but I like to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I like people to kind of give us a background, a context in which we're having our conversation, just so, you know, they understand completely like where we're coming at here. So tell us about Dr. Douglas Lucas. Yeah. So, you know, my background um, as an orthopedic surgeon by traditional training. So I went through the traditional, you know, medical training. I went through, you know, medical school at uh, Virginia Tech, and then I did residency in Columbus, Ohio, and then a fellowship at Stanford uh, in foot and ankle surgery. Specifically, I practiced as a kind of a traditional orthopedic surgeon specializing in foot and ankle, but taking a lot of general call, meaning that I managed fractures, uh, hip fractures, spine fractures, you know, all the things that we see in the in the world of osteoporosis. And I did that for about seven years. During that time, I recognized that I had a strong interest in trying to prevent the services that I actually was providing. Um, so when people would come to me with problems like osteoporosis, uh, diabetes, p- being overweight, I was really interested in helping them to understand the nutrition side, the the exercise side, the, all the you know, kind of the science behind how to not need surgery. And so I started talking more and more about these things, educating myself more and more, but got very frustrated because I didn't have time to talk about it. Because, you know, as a, if, if anybody's been to the doctor lately, you know, they know you go in and you got like five minutes, man, that's it. And so um, I was, we were doing a lot of good work with surgery, but I was really looking for a way, an avenue and out that I could actually have a, a different conversation. My wife, while I was, Training also got her PhD in nutrition and she started a nutrition company. And so watching her work with her clients, I recognized the power in prevention, the power in nutrition. Uh, And then I kind of took a seat, scientific seat, helping her develop the back end of her company. And I recognized that there was this potential path for me to sort of steer out of orthopedics and then into what is now really kind of two companies. One is optimal bone health, like you mentioned, and the other is optimal human health. The latter actually came first with the idea that we could really help people to optimize their health with all the fun tools that we have at our disposal, which we'll talk about. Um, But then I created Optimal Bone Health because Optimal Bone Health is a uh, really a directed approach at osteoporosis and osteopenia. And I feel it is a a massively underserved community. People that have a lot of questions, uh, a diagnosis that is generally managed with medications only. And it really requires kind of what we built, which is this comprehensive approach to bone health so that you can really understand why you're losing bone, how to stop that bone loss, and then what you can do to rebuild bone. 
Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. So go and go into more of detail about what the comprehensive approach is, because we know, you know, <clears throat> certainly those of us who have been to enough doctors and have been in athletics and something like that, when something pops or snaps or something like that, so we go into see an orthopedist and they do their thing. Maybe it requires surgery, maybe it doesn't. Or if you just, you've had a child who fell off a monkey bar and broke an arm, yep. well, you know what the next stop is from there. Um, so, I mean, we know that, but what is the comprehensive approach that you speak of? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, let me start with what is the usual approach to, to mm -hmm. osteoporosis. So, you know, from an, from an orthopedics perspective, I would see patients that would come in with a fracture, right? Now, ideally, if you have osteoporosis, that's not where you are learning how to manage your osteoporosis. Ideally, we want to prevent that first fracture. So let's take that, that patient. Let's say they're screened for whatever reason with a DEXA scan, and we can talk about imaging. Uh, but let's say they're screened, they get a diagnosis of osteoporosis. Typically, what they're going to find is that nobody really wants to talk about it. Their primary care doctor will kind of gloss over it typically because, again, go back, go back to the time thing. They have to fit a hundred things into five minutes. That's really hard to do. So this is not disparaging primary care, but they just don't have time to really dig into it. So they might refer that patient to an endocrinologist or rheumatologist. Um, and same thing with those subspecialties is that they're really focused on these very complex problems in their subspecialty and osteoporosis just really isn't in their subspecialty. You know, yes, they can deal with it. And yes, there are even some specialists in those subspecialties on bone health. But in general, they are going to talk about uh, what is your fracture risk? And then what kind of medication do you qualify for? And how do you get that medication? And that's usually it. There might be a very short conversation of you should optimize your diet. You should take supplemental calcium and vitamin D because those are the recommendations from the big governing bodies. That is what I would expect from the from the, the traditional medical community. And again, this is not to disparage doctors. This is just the system that we have. If you really want to understand why you're losing bone, because I look at osteoporosis as a disease that really shouldn't exist in the first place. So if you have osteoporosis, one of two things has really occurred. Either you never achieved good bone quality in the first place, which is really common, or you have been rapidly losing bone for one reason or another. If you achieved good bone quality and quantity in the first place, and you take care of your body and you optimize yourself over time, you should not be rapidly losing bone with a couple of exceptions. And so really osteoporosis, if you have it, it should not be considered a normal process of aging. It should be considered a, a problem and you've got to figure out why you're losing bone. So that's where we start. So we use uh, what we call the four R process. And the first R of the four R's is to recognize why are, why are you losing bone? The second R then is to reverse those causes of bone loss. So to figure out why you're losing bone, we go through quite a bit of blood testing. We use some urine testing as well. There's a lot of functional testing that we can do. And that really gets into the nitty gritty of, of some of the things like gut and cortisol levels and adrenal dysfunction and all those kind of functional things. We don't do those for every patient, though. That's on a case-by-case -case basis. But for every patient that comes through, we do blood and urine testing to help us to understand why you're losing bone. And then we try to come up with a plan to reverse those causes of bone loss. That plan could include, well, it will include, lifestyle things like nutrition, optimizing nutrition. Um, we can really dig into that. The movement side, I'm sure. I want to hear what you do, actually, for these patients. So that'd be really interesting to talk about. Uh, we also talk about stress mitigation and we talk about sleep optimization. So those are kind of those four pillars of lifestyle. And then we create a, a targeted supplement plan for these patients. And then we create 
a plan that could include some of the more advanced things like hormone optimization or replacement, if they're a good candidate for that, potentially peptides, depending on what else are going on that we can target these things for. And then we have a conversation about medications, but we typically aren't prescribing them because patients are coming to us because they don't want to take them in the first place. Gotcha, gotcha. So the uh, hormone optimization, something I, I did see on your website and the peptides and mm -hmm. uh, supplements. So, um, Kind of clarify for us, I mean, what really is the difference between that and pharmaceuticals? I mean, you're talking about optimizing certain things. Well, optimization, yeah. you know, in most people's minds is, well, popping the pill, taking an injection, whatever else, some, doing something externally that you are manually controlling. Um, mm -hmm. So if you can kind of... Yeah, like, I think that you... Yeah, so I, I think um, optimization can mean a lot of things, and that's a challenge in... You know, one of our challenges out of the gate was how do we tell people what it is that we do? You know, we talk about health optimization, but what the heck does that mean? And so I look at optimization as a kind of a big, a global picture. It, a lot of it is lifestyle driven, right? So if you don't have good sleep and you have high levels of cortisol and your stress is through the roof and you're eating a terrible diet, there's really nothing I can do that's going to offset that because those are so, they're so powerful. Um, but assuming that we can kind of capture a good fundamental, the four pillars of, of lifestyle, you know, what are the things we can then do to optimize hormones and, and, um, and, and lifestyle potentially with peptides? Um, it depends on your starting point. So a number of patients with osteoporosis are going to be postmenopausal women. It's probably our biggest group uh, or perimenopausal, but we'll just focus on postmenopausal. There's not a lot of optimizing you can do without replacement in that group. And so you could ask, well, how is that different than pharmaceuticals? Well, there are pharmaceutical forms of hormone replacement, right? Um, that's not how we do it. I think that the hormone replacement and, and hormone optimization um, field has really taken this kind of crazy turn over the last really, gosh, I don't know, 40 years where the things that are done in the traditional medical model are going to, um, they're all going to be synthetic forms of hormones. They're going to be delivered in ways that are relatively unnatural. And the research behind those products is a little bit concerning. So the risk-benefit conversation is, is challenging in some ways. Um, and the doctors that are prescribing those things typically are going to be OBGYN, maybe primary care. They are doing it in a way that's really focused on the FDA-approved reason for using those drugs, which is the symptoms of, of menopause. Now, we know that from the research, there are a number of other effects of replacing hormones, but the FDA has not approved those drugs for those things. So we're, you know, it's kind of like you're not allowed to talk about it. So when I say we use hormones, I have to be very careful how I say that. Um, and I say that we use hormones to optimize people. We're not using it specifically for this one diagnosis, right? So we can optimize hormones. And most of these patients do have uh, symptoms of menopause. So it's, we are using it on label. <clears throat> but I use bioidentical hormones. These are compounded. They are not made by pharmaceutical companies. And really to answer your question, they are the same hormones that your body makes naturally. We're just giving them exogenously, meaning from the outside, right? So these are exogenous hormones, but they're the same thing as what your body makes naturally versus a pharmaceutical company, which is going to make something that is synthetic that your body doesn't necessarily know what to do with and will have side effects. Um, and they do that because a synthetic product can be patented, whereas something that occurs naturally, it's much more difficult or sometimes can't be patented. So there's no, you know, there's no, m m the pathway for money generation is limited. Um, so that's why drug companies tend to not use things like that because they can't, uh, they can't recoup their losses on uh, getting FDA approval.
I see, I see, I see. Um, so you talked about early signs. You, know, you mentioned when you, uh, you have a patient who has osteoporosis, okay? So you said that either, you know, your bone health wasn't great to start with. And this is what, this was the inevitable outcome. So right. here we are. Or something happened and you are, you're just rapidly on your way down in terms of your bone density and your overall quality of health. So what are some of the things you can look out for? Some of the things you can do to mitigate that? Because I know for myself, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm very active. I lift weights. I do all that stuff. And, you know, you, you anyone over by way of osmosis tends to just pick up on, well, if you want to avoid osteoporosis and osteopenia, and things like that, or sarcopenia, anything like that, you better get out there and move some heavy stuff and keep your right. body strong. Um, but I'm kind of wondering, it's like, is there more to it than just that? Yeah, well, so if you look at the research, and I just did a, a YouTube video on this, so I, I really we kind of did a deep dive into the, the research on the, the movement side, the weightlifting side, because mm -hmm. you're right, you know, in that, in that conversation, that five-minute conversation with your doctor where they say, take adequate vitamin D, calcium, this is the drug recommendation or not. And you should, you know, lift weights. But then they, then they sort of like take a step back. They're like, oh, but, but, don't, but don't lift anything heavy because you might have a fracture, right? And so <laughs> this is really challenging. Like, well, well, wait, like, what do I do? Like, I don't know what to do. Um, and so as a telehealth company, we struggle with that too because we don't have the capacity to watch somebody lifting weights to look at their form. So early on, we really relied on on local trainers who had some kind of experience with osteoporosis. And we're kind of, you know, it's a lot of blind faith in somebody that we don't know. We've since been able to onboard uh, some companies that use kind of a Pilates-ish approach because the form is, is pretty simple. The benefit is is good and the benefit is has been demonstrated in literature. Um, so we've kind of gone that route. But if you if you look at, you know, I just did a video on this. What is the best uh, the best exercise for osteoporosis? You you'll find that high high impact training, meaning high like high resistance training and actual impact training, which, again, I'm not telling anybody to go out and do this. <laughs> but those are the things that are going to have the, the biggest impact on bone. And it makes sense if you understand the physiology of bone, which is your bones respond to stress. They're, they're, they're constantly turning over. And osteoporosis is simply an imbalance of bone building and bone breakdown, right? So we want to, we want to shift that. And there's a lot of things we can do from the, you know, supplement, nutrition, uh, hormone side to help reduce bone loss, but to build bone really takes stimulus. And some people will say, well, I walk every day. Well, there are, there's evidence to say that you will continue to lose bone if you just go out and walk every day. Like it's not enough. Um, things like jogging won't do it. Bicycle riding actually negatively associated with osteoporosis. Yeah, meaning I can that, see why too. Yeah, if you just ride bikes, you, you might have incredible cardiovascular fitness, but your bones don't care, right? right? Because you're not loading them. There's no impact. So you have to do something that's going to load them. And the, the best thing for that, according to the literature, is lifting heavy weights. And, and the study that I, I really talk about most is uh, called the, the Liftmore trial. That's L-I-F-T-M-O-R. I think there's an E at the end. Um, and there's a couple of different versions of that. But essentially, they created a trial where they they had uh, their uh, subjects doing, I believe it was 80 to 85 percent of one rep max, you know, in like in, in sets of five, uh, so five sets of five reps. So that, that's pretty heavy, right? Um, particularly for a group of with patients with osteoporosis. And so, um, so they're lifting heavy weights and then they also had them do impact training. Literally they were doing a chin up, letting go and landing. I mean, just like off of a chin up bar. 
So again, I'm not telling anybody to go out and do that because I don't know what your starting point is. These patients were, they were screened, they were, this was all done in person. Um, and their injury rate in the published trial was very low. They had one patient with a back sprain and that was it. Um, so it, it seems like there's certainly more that you can do, um, but the benefit is going to be s- somewhat limited. I don't mean to say that in a negative way, but even if, even with the Lifmore trial, the maximum improvement over the course of the trial was still less than 3%, which is really just over the variation of DEXA in the first place. So DEXA being the imaging study for bone health, it has it's kind of hard to know, but probably around one to 2% variance from study to study, meaning that if you see a, a, an increase or a decrease of 2% from your last study, you don't know if that's real or if that's just a difference in the study. So in this one where they had up to 3%, you could say, well, yeah, there was very likely a benefit, but that margin's pretty small. And so when you have a patient that has a, that has pretty significant osteoporosis, a 3% shift is good, but it's not enough. And so that's where we take, you know, that that recommendation of exercise and movement and we say, okay, yes, this is a part, but we got to do more. And that's why you really have to start stacking all these different interventions. That's interesting. So I'm going to ask you something. I, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this man before, this, uh, this guy called um, John Jankwish or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he has a pretty, um, a, a pretty interesting hypothesis. Uh, he would tell you it's fact because he's pretty abrasive like that. He's, um, he's a little aggressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he goes around saying lifting weights is a waste of time. Now he's got this uh, this contraption that he's patented. Yeah. That he says well ma- maximizes um, the benefits you get from lifting weights more so um, than actually lifting the weights because I, and I don't quite understand how he really makes it do this, but I guess essentially like the eccentric part of the, the lift or something like that is what really is where the muscle gains come from. And so this, this uh, uh, invention he has maximizes that or uses it to its full utility. So what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, so he has a number of patents. Um, the two, there's kind of two devices um, that I know of. And, and I don't, if, I'm, if, if you want me to say them, I can say them or, or not. It's up to you. But um, yeah, so I mean, I, I I like what he's done, and so he has an interesting story. He's got a couple of books out too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know him personally, but I, I know a number of people that have worked with him directly. And so um, he was part of creating the company OsteoStrong. So OsteoStrong is a franchise. Um, it's a Tony Robbins back company, and they uh, have created well, he created the the devices, <clears throat> and then they patent they get the patent, and you know they have created the franchise. So that those devices are based off the concept of osteogenic loading mm-hmm. with the idea that if you if you load with multiples of body weight, you are going to uh, kind of trick the bones into having a significant response. And they get that if you read if you read John's book, they get that off of the idea that the the best activity, especially growing up for developing high, high quality bone and, and high bone density is gymnastics. And so if you look at, you know, when gymnasts are landing, the, the multiples of body weight, you know, six, eight, 12 times body weight, right? Now, I'm not telling anybody to go jump off of the, the high bars or whatever. Um, but, but if you can reproduce that in a controlled manner, then potentially you could cause the bone to grow. And that is, seems to be true. Now, the challenge with OsteoStrong, um, is that you have to have one around you. So you have to have the devices. And there are there are a lot of them. I don't know how many there are now, but there are a number of them. Um, and I think it, it does work. 
I wish that a third party company would do a, a study on it. There's no monetary reason why they would. So all of the research is sort of in-house, which is always a little concerning. But at the same time, um, I think the risk is low, the benefit is potentially high, and it's part of a program. So if, when I have patients that have an osteostrong near them, I'll, I'll recommend that they do it. Um, or there's also, there's another company, and I, I wish I could remember so I could be at least fair, but there's another company that has a similar osteogenic loading device, um, and uh, they are not a franchise. So you generally will find those in more like a chiropractor's office, something like that. My understanding is that this, the science is the same. I've been on both, feels the same to me. I don't know what the back end looks like. Uh, the other thing that, that uh, John, and I think you pronounce his name, uh, Jake Wish. I could be wrong about that. I think it's Jack Wish. Jack Wish, yeah. Um, so the other thing that he created that I really like is his X3 bar system. So again, I have no, I have no financial relationship with any of these things. Um, I have an X3 bar, it's right there. Um, and so, yeah, what I like about that is it is, is something you can do with, you know, no free weights. It doesn't cost, I mean, the bar, it's kind of an expensive strap system, but, you know, compared to buying a whole gym, it's, it's real, it's very inexpensive. Um, and the quality seems really good. I, I travel with it. So I take it with me when I'm, when I'm driving anywhere. Um, and I think it does really work. And again, the science behind it seems to make sense. You know, it, the challenge I have with the concept is, you have to do it to failure. And I think doing anything to failure is, is really, really tough. So it's less of a muscle thing and more of a mind thing. Um, and so I, you know, when I was doing it almost exclusively for a while, when, you know, was, you know, my house was being renovated, I didn't have my equipment and I don't belong to a gym. So when I was doing that almost exclusively, I really struggled with the ability to create, you know, going to failure in my own muscles. Um, and maybe it's just because I'm used to doing, you know, a certain number of sets and a certain number of reps, but but I really struggled with that. Yeah, I think that probably would be an inhibition to a lot of people. I mean, the idea, yeah, you're right. The idea of going to failure is, it's pretty subjective. I mean, what, what you think failure is. And I think mm -hmm. I've, I've even kind of toyed with the idea myself. It's like, you know, I wonder that if I just... If I didn't have any concept of what failure was, could I just potentially keep going forever? It's like, well, I can only do 10 pull-ups, and so I just kind of naturally stop at 10 pull-ups or something like that. Right, and, right. Yeah, so it is kind of it is kind of a mind game. So I guess I guess if you go like full like David Goggins or something like that, you just, like, you just okay. break through whatever that barrier is that you put through yourself. And I guess, but in my, in my own uh, experience, going to failure, going, trying to push past failure, whatever it is, I think it, there is something to that. I think there is a benefit to that because no doubt I'm feeling it the next day more so than I just kind of, if I consciously stopped <laughs> at, at whatever marker. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I've, I've done multiple, I've, you know, I've trained with a lot of different people and yeah. I've had people say, you know, do this to failure. And I, I generally will do, you know, if they, <laughs> I respond well to being yelled at. So if they yell at me, I generally can do more than I would do on my own. But yeah. the challenge is I'm training on my own almost all the time. So if you say, well, do, you know, do these curls to failure, especially when, you know, in the X3 system, you know, there's, there's four, there's four levels of straps, five, if you buy the extra one, it's like, well, I'm between level two and three, and I could do like eight with this one, but I could do like 35 with this one. Like, well, I don't know, like doing 35, I just get bored, you know? So I just, I don't know, I, I, I struggle with that. But again, unless you have a gym at home and I'm really fortunate to, to, to have invested in that equipment. So like I, I can do it. Um, 
but you know, most people don't have access to that at home. And then, you know, can you get to the gym? How often? What's the equipment like? It's, there's so many variables in there. So it is a, it's a really good alternative for sure. I kind of wonder about his, especially his strap system. I have heard about his other um, kind of his, uh, previous system before. And I think that kind mm -hmm. of works. But when you're working with patients who have brittle bones yeah. and are very sort of sickly, I wonder just how useful those straps really would be. And I don't want to digress too much into talking about yeah, I mean, I've, I haven't seen a study on that specifically. I think it would be interesting, right? Because if you think, like, one of the challenges I have with with cycling and saying, like, well, cycling, you know, people say what causes osteoporosis. Well, that's not necessarily true, but um, it doesn't stimulate bone loading. But at the same time, like, I, I ride bikes, and I will tell you, like, I'm, my muscles are firing pretty darn hard. So you would think that that would be stimulating some bone response and the same thing with a strap right like you're if you're loading it without any impact you know especially if a, if you're doing a lower you know lower resistance are you going to have an impact on the bone i don't know it's better than nothing but i've never seen a study on it so what's the difference between osteoporosis and osteopenia yeah great question so it goes back to um gosh i wish i remember the date there was a time at which brit brittle bones were just called brittle bones. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we developed, I say we as if I did it, when the technology was developed to get a sense of bone density, and this it ended up becoming the DEXA scan. But when that technology was developed, they then had a way to objectify, you know, what people that had brittle bones actually had. And it was great at the time because now we could say, okay, well, you have brittle bones and you don't. You're more likely to fracture and you're not. So it sort of led down, it go this down this pathway of um, of research that really developed the, the groundwork for osteoporosis. So that was great that we were able to do that. But the challenge now is that we have this this study called a DEXA, which stands for Dual Energy X-ray Absorbed Geometry. It's basically a, an X-ray, um, and it does look at the density of bones. As I alluded to earlier though, it um, there's quite a bit of variability from study to study. There's variability from machine to machine, meaning today if I went to one side of town and got a DEXA and then I went to the other side of town and got a DEXA, I might get significantly different scores. If you go to the same DEXA and somebody does a scan and then that person goes on lunch break and somebody else comes in and does that same scan again, you're gonna potentially get different scores. So it's not a perfect test. It's been considered the gold standard, though. So now any new technology that comes around can really only be measured to the gold standard. So let's say it shows that it's different than the gold standard. There's no way to know which one's actually more accurate. So we've sort of created this this thing where, you know, we know we, we know that it's 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 good, but we can't actually prove that anything's better because there's no other way to look at it. So it's, that's really been a hindrance over the last, you know, kind of now we have some ultrasound technology that's really cool over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, but it's really hard to implement that when the gold standard is sort of set in stone. Um, to answer your question though, the DEXA is responsible for that their variance from osteoporosis to osteopenia. And really what a DEXA does is it, it shoots that X-ray, it looks at the density of your bone, which is essentially the mineralization, and then it'll give you a score in reference to what is likely your peak bone mass. Now, it doesn't know what your peak bone mass was. That would be really cool. 
But what it does is it sort of guesses what your peak bone mass would have been based on some objective metrics. Um, and then it gives you a score. And the one we're looking at is called the T as in Tom score. So the T score. And that T score is the standard deviation from the average of what would have been your peak bone mass. So now people are looking at statistics and sort of losing interest. But basically osteoporosis is a T score of less than negative 2.5. And so it's, you know, if you just go down less than negative 2.5 and then osteopenia is between negative one and negative um, uh, one point, I'm sorry, negative 2.5. So it's sort of that like it's bad, but not too bad. Um, and so osteopenia is is some bone loss, osteoporosis is worse bone loss, and then they are both really just attempting to objectify your fracture risk. I see. Okay, so it's like a prelude to an outside. Potentially, yeah. It's like it's like the symptoms of what it could become. It's like it's I don't know, something like it's HIV before full bone AIDS or something. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. But yeah, it's basically a continuum where, you know, osteopenia could potentially sort of predispose you to osteoporosis because you already have some bone loss. The challenge I had, well, I have a lot of challenges with this, but one of the challenges I have with the study is that when you, when you have osteopenia, let's say, like for example, I'm a good example, right? So I technically have osteopenia. Now, why does a 200 pound, you know, relatively fit muscular guy have osteopenia? Well, for me, it probably goes back to when I was a kid and the diet that I ate. Um, I probably didn't achieve great bone mass to begin with. And I actually have a DEXA scan from when I was in medical school. I was involved in a study and I had osteopenia then. So I know that I never achieved great bone mass. Um, but if you look at metrics of bone quality, and this is one of the challenges of DEXA is it doesn't give you one. But if you look at metrics of bone quality, I have great bone quality, meaning that, yeah, my bone density is not as good as somebody else, potentially my age that has better bone density, but my bone quality is really good. Therefore, my likelihood of fracture is extremely low. So you could argue, hey, you know, am I at risk for osteoporosis based on the fact that I have osteopenia? I would argue probably not because of all the things that I'm doing now, because of the way that, you know, I have sort of shaped my life in that I have really good bone quality. I don't think I'm going to continue to see bone loss. But it does put you at risk if you, you know, don't know where you're starting from and you don't change anything about the trajectory. So, yes, I know. Okay. So, potentially, just about anyone walking around right now could have osteopenia. Yeah, I mean. By, by strict definition. And this is the challenge of, um, this is one of the challenges of, of who to screen for osteoporosis and when. If you look at the screening recommendations from the World Health Organization and from various organizations in the U.S., They'll say um, you should be screened for osteoporosis if you are a woman age 65 or older, a man age 70 or older, or have any of this kind of list of, of risk factors. Now, most people look at those, the first part of that and say, well, I'm not 65, I'm good. When they look at the list of risk factors, if they look at the list of risk factors, they're in medical jargon. So patients aren't generally going to you know, know potentially if they, under, if they meet any of these risk factors. And a lot of times doctors don't really dig into them either, you know, because they, they will just look at the patient's, you know, medical history and like, well, they don't have, they're not diagnosed with anything, so we're good. The truth, though, is that if you look at those risk factors, you know, it's things like, have you ever, um, have you ever had an eating disorder? Well, let's just like, just think about that for a second. Okay, diagnosed eating disorder, like anorexia, bulimia, or how about chronic dieting, right? How about eating poor quality food for most of your life? How about eating a highly processed food diet, right? Like, I think all those patients could potentially be at risk of malabsorption and poor nutrients. So I think that one by itself includes most people. Um, have you ever smoked? Do you have a family history of, of osteoporosis or, or 
uh, fracture, fragility fracture. Um, to you have, and they'll say things like gut dysfunction or, or malabsorption. They're really alluding to people that have celiac disease, but we do, like I said, a lot of functional testing in the gut. And I know that, you know, yes, people that have celiac disease have poor nutrient absorption, but there is a spectrum of absorption of both celiac and non, non-gluten celiac like sensitivity, meaning that people that are eating wheat are still destroying their guts, but they don't qualify as having celiac disease those patients are at high risk of having osteoporosis too. So the truth is that there really probably isn't anyone that doesn't meet the, the need to be screened early. Um, but, but then the question is, how do we, how do we screen those patients? Do, do they all get DEXA scan? You know, from a public policy perspective, it's an absolute nightmare. Um, but, you know, my patients that are coming in, if they meet any of those things, which I can tell you is honestly almost everybody, um, we do recommend a DEXA because it is relatively inexpensive. It's it, that age going to be a cash pay thing, um, but at least it's a screening tool. So, you know, what your starting point is. Gotcha. You think this is really more, I mean, you hear, we hear a lot about osteoporosis and osteopenia and things like that. That may be just because of the fact that we, which is the line of work that we're in. Yeah. We run into these things quite a bit. So the uh, statistics might be kind of skewed for that reason. But Right. Do you think this is kind of more of a modernized kind of problem? I know that's a huge question to ask, but, um, or is it just more on the radar than it has been before? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we we are in a biased perspective where we're hearing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I honestly think, because even as an orthopedic surgeon, we talked about fragility fractures and hip fractures, and we obviously saw them all the time. But we didn't talk about osteoporosis much, mostly because we didn't want to treat it. We didn't want to deal with it. Um, you know, every every subspecialist is busy doing their subspecialty thing, and osteoporosis, unfortunately, doesn't really fit in anybody's. So, you know, I think that uh, I'm glad that there's more conversation coming out, and I'm glad that we're, we're bringing up the discussion because we do need to talk about it more, and I think we need to continue to talk about it more, which is why I'm, that's why I'm out here. Um, I think the bigger question is how much does it matter? And, and I say that, you know, I know that's going to be controversial, but again, it comes down to your fracture risk, you know, and, and we are using this gold standard DEXA to come up with a, a density measurement, which is part of the fracture risk, but it's not the whole thing. And so I think we're talking about osteoporosis and osteopenia. And sadly, we're creating a lot of fear. A lot of patients that come to me, once they've gotten that diagnosis, they're so fearful of having a fracture um, that in, in a lot of these patients, it is not I don't feel it's that relevant. You know, a lot of the borderline osteoporosis, people that have great bone quality, you know, they're at low risk of fracture. And yet I have patients that, you know, they're not participating in activities anymore. They're afraid to like travel a long distance in their car because they're going to have a spine fracture. So I think in some ways we're creating a lot of fear by doing that. So we really need to work on on the education piece, which again is kind of why we're out here. So I think it's real. I think it's underserved, but I also think it's undereducated. And there's a lot of, when you start getting into the space, you know, the online space of around osteoporosis, there's a lot of wonky information out there. Um, so again, that's kind of, that's why I'm here. Well, there's a lot of wonky information about almost everything you go online. <laughs> so that's why it's kind of a, kind of a hazardous environment to really step into. But, um, okay. So we have the, we have this, uh, this difference between osteopenia and osteoporosis and we have, you know, it may or may not be more of a modern uh, 21st century problem or more of a heightened 21st century problem. And it might just be kind of pushing a, a 
false alarm bell for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, could be. But then again, it's still a problem. And like you said before, in the conventional uh, medicine side, it's not really something that anyone feels really qualified or comfortable or really wants the body to do. Now, um, I've, from a number of guests I've had on this program, this is what I've typically heard. Like there is just this disenfranchisement or kind of this growing distance of people who have been in traditional healthcare and kind of said, what am I doing here? <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like I'm really kind of um, doing what I wanted to do in this role that I took on. Um, now, I don't want to sound like I'm against the medical profession or I'm against doctors or anything like that. I'm not. I believe in modern medicine completely. Um, but I've heard more and more over the, over the months I've been doing this that there is this uh, feeling like, well, I'm limited here and I can't really help anyone the way to help. This is more of like uh, reactionary rather than preventive. And that's not the direction I want to take. And so here I am doing this thing now on my own. So right. when was that? When was that really? Was there like a moment of breaking point for you or, or is it just oh, yeah. like a accumulation of things that just kind of said all right it, yeah i mean so there was a very specific point and i'll tell you about it but it is i see it so i see it so commonly now and again maybe my biased perspective because i'm you know i'm in i'm in this space and i hear all these different stories from different doctors but i think people are afraid to talk about right now the the flood of physicians that are leaving the medical model you know, I, I get I get emails and phone calls all day long of recruiters trying to find physicians because they're they're just they're running away from the medical model for a lot of reasons. Some of it is, you know, a death by a thousand cuts, a death by a thousand clicks, as we like to say, with electronic medical records. Um, it's challenging to take care of people because most physicians that go into medicine are really doing it because they want to help people. They enjoy that that, you know face-to-face -face communication um, and really Im improving somebody's life. There's a lot of just so much value in that, but they are disenfranchised is a good way to put it. They feel like they're in a reactionary position, which is exactly what we've created because we have a sick model of care. We are not incentivized as physicians to take care of or to help people to optimize their health, right? There's no money. I can't get paid to have a discussion with what's well, not entirely true. I don't get paid much to have a discussion with somebody about nutrition. In fact, I even had my insurance company tell me that I wasn't qualified to talk about nutrition um, as an orthopedic surgeon. That was a very frustrating conversation. Um, and so we are just really kind of pulled out of it. And, and I, it feels like you are, as a physician, just told to just, just do your job, just make your widgets. So for me as a surgeon, they just wanted me to operate and they wanted me to operate a lot. You know, so I was seeing in my, the, the, busiest I ever got, I was seeing, you know, between 70 and 80 patients a day in the clinic. And we were doing, you know, 10 plus surgeries a day in the operating room. That is really high volume. And you cannot have a discussion about anything other than surgery. And that's exactly what the hospital system wants, because it is, even if it's a nonprofit system, they're still about the profit, right? They need to get people coming in as surgeons, as orthopedic surgeons in particular, we are one of the biggest money generating components of a hospital. So they want us to do what we do. So um, the the point where for me, even though, yeah, it was a little bit of a death by a thousand clicks, um, there was a moment, this was after I had moved, I was in Colorado where I started practice and then I moved to Asheville and joined a private group and I was taking a lot of call at a, at a high level trauma center. And 
at, when you take call, you have to, you know, sometimes do emergent cases. And, and one of the groups that I took quite a bit of care of were patients with diabetes because I had a foot and ankle subspecialty. And so one of the things that can happen is patients with diabetes, because they lose sense, sensation in their feet, they'll get ulcers. And so when ulcers get infected, you can either have a local infection or it can become a systemic full body infection and that can kill you very quickly. So I got a call from a patient who was diabetic. I, I didn't know him before this. I got to know him pretty well after. And um, so he was diabetic, he had an ulcer, he had a, a systemic infection and he his labs looked terrible. He was sick, he was in the intensive care unit and he needed to have part of his leg cut off. So we go in, uh, you know, this was probably two, three o'clock in the morning. I go in, I meet the patient, um, you know, this is what we have to do. Obviously he was very surprised and unhappy, um, but he was gonna die. So we had to take his leg off. This patient was very overweight. He was probably between 300 and 400 pounds. Operating room tables are very narrow. So they're generally, I don't remember how exactly how big, but you know, 24 inches, 28 inches, whatever, right? Pretty narrow. So positioning somebody that size on a table that small is really challenging. In the middle of the night, typically when you're doing these emerging cases, you have a skeleton crew. It's really hard to get people to work in the middle of the night. Um, and so we had a skeleton crew. It was probably me, a scrub tech, and even probably the, you know, the anesthesiologist or nurse anesthetist that was at the top of the table positioning this patient. And uh, it was very challenging. And I remember kind of just being sort of like up to my elbows in the, you know, in the patient's thigh, trying to get him on the table and thinking, like, what am I doing? You know, like, this is stupid, right? Like my skill set in communication and education is best served in daylight hours, number one, but preventing this patient from being here in the first place. And in training, I remember we would see patients that had out of control diabetes and out of control obesity and just think, oh my gosh, if they would just take the advice that we give them, right? That, that like white, the white coat, you know, ivory tower mentality. Um, and the truth is when I got to know this patient and this was true with so many of my diabetic patients, he was following the advice that he'd been given, right? He was eating the diet that he'd been told to eat. He was taking his medications on schedule. And diabetes is one of those things, kind of like osteoporosis, where I feel like the traditional medical model is provides a huge disservice in all of the education and in the medications because they're going down the wrong pathway. I don't want to go off on a tangent about diabetes. But anyway, this patient, I got to know him, recognized, man, if if I could have if I could have met him a year earlier, he still would have been diabetic and obese, but I could have prevented what happened. Um, if I had met him 10 years earlier, who knows what I could have prevented, you know? And so that was really it for me where I, a number of factors into it, but that's the one that I remember thinking, I really have to make a shift. That was interesting to hear you say that because I, when you said that you had this diabetic patient that, you know, that you just, that everyone assumed like he's not taking care of himself, but then lo and behold, he is. I saw a TED talk not that long ago, this, another surgeon who said that he made the same mistake. He assumed this woman he had was just not following anything, just a living train wreck. And it was just completely um, uh, recalcitrant on her on her medications and her care. Well, that wasn't the case. And that made him, forced him to re-examine what he thought diabetes was and how to actually properly manage it or mitigate it. So, yeah, that's really cool. I heard you just say that. Yeah. It just kind of like reinforced what I heard from him. And, yeah. Um, I could talk about diabetes all day. It's it's uh, it's really unfortunate what what patients with diabetes are being told and how they're being managed because it's it is not going to help them to reverse the problem, but that's not the goal. 
the traditional medical model says, let's, let's help control your blood sugar because we're not going to have an impact on your insulin. We're not going to have an impact on the way that you eat. We're not going to have an, right. It's just, it's just avoiding the underlying causes, just saying, Hey, we'll just keep your blood sugar down for as long as we can, but eventually we're going to lose. And that's what they're told. <laughs> it's yeah, crazy. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, okay. So now, so now we are, we have this model on your own, you formulate your own path now, and then you are working to help uh, people who have osteoporosis and osteopenia and all the other kind of things that come with it, with diabetes. Um, so what I'm curious about, uh, and this is partly selfish, uh, is what can uh, people who work in kind of an, an ancillary uh, fashion, like personal trainers and physical therapists and uh, all these other uh, different departments or different components of healthcare, what can we do to help these people in in concert with the orthopedic doctors and the nutritionists? Yeah, I mean, I think it really, gosh, it's it's tough in the fitness space because everybody sort of has their has their box and their box sort of overlaps with a lot of other people's boxes. Mm-hmm. But I think if you have somebody that you're working with that has osteoporosis, I think the most important thing is to encourage them to be a, an advocate for themselves. You know, to say, okay, you know, do you want to take medication or not? Do you understand what your what your risk of fracture is? Um, because a lot of patients, they get the diagnosis, they read about the meds, they don't want to take the meds, and they just kind of shove their head in the sand and say, well, um, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. And I can tell you, and I hate I hate being the, the statistic scary person, but if you have a hip fracture, <laughs> only one third of patients after a hip fracture regain independence. That's that's a really small number when you're talking about something as important as being able to live by yourself. Um, you know, the scarier side of that is a third of those patients will be dead after a year. Right. I mean, it's a, it's, it's such a big deal. And yet, you know, like there's no other disease that has those kinds of mortality (laughs) and loss of independence rates. Right. Like we talk about it as like, this is something that's preventable. Like you should do everything you can to prevent this. Like we don't even hear about it. So I think encouraging patients to really take a, a, a big picture look and say, okay, how bad is my bone health? You know, how aggressively should I be doing something about this? Um, and pull their head out of the sand and say, okay, you know, maybe these pharmaceuticals, if this is the only option you have, have these potential side effects. But what's the side effect of this drug versus what's the potential of having these effects from a hip fracture? You know, it's, a, it's, it really should be that discussion. I know you can't have that discussion, but you encourage patients to have that discussion, whatever is in your scope though. So let's say you're a, you know, a nutritionist or an RD or you know, say you're in the fitness field, encourage them to maximize whatever it is that you do. So if you're in the fitness space, instead of, you know, you know, asking them, Hey, you know, what did your doctors tell you you can do? Well, they told me not to lift more than three pounds. Okay. Do you think that maybe we could have them prescribe you some physical therapy so we can get some official recommendations that allow us to, you know, push, push the barriers on that? Because a lot of doctors will use that, you know, don't lift more than three to five pounds for everyone that has osteoporosis, which is stupid. You know, I mean, because a lot of times they'll even use that for people that have osteopenia. Like, again, like, I have osteopenia. I know a number of other people that are that kind of look like me that have osteopenia. Um, if you told me that I shouldn't lift more than three to five pounds because I'm at high risk for a fracture, that's ridiculous. You know, so we need to understand, okay, what are your limitations? How bad is your bone? And then let's maximize the heck out of that so that we can really push the boundaries, really start to stimulate some bone growth. Isn't that kind of counterintuitive to tell someone who has osteopenia or osteoporosis <laughs> to say, 
don't lift very heavy because what we just talked about here is like, well, right. the impact of lifting like, well, heavy, weight. Yeah, exactly. you know, is what fortifies the bones. I mean, the bones are alive like everything else. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And yeah, well, you know, it, so it, it yeah. goes to, um, and there's actually, this is a great parallel to diabetes that I'll draw. So it goes to the entire underlying concept of the traditional medical model, which we talked about it. It is sick care, right? So we just mm -hmm. take care of disease. But then also it is reactive and it is um, very conservative from a liability perspective, right? So everybody, every doctor is worried about being sued and rightfully so. Um, but if you if you have a diagnosis of osteoporosis and your patient comes in and they say, well, you know, you have, you have osteoporosis. Um, if I tell you to do something that causes a fracture, you could sue me. So what, you know, what's my reaction to that? Well, I'm going to really hedge my bets. Don't lift anything more than three to five pounds, but definitely lift weights. And it's like, well, right. wait, what? Um, you know, same thing with diabetes. It's it's uh, this idea of, well, we're going to put you on medications going to lower your glucose. But if you have a low and you suffer a complication or potentially die, you know, that's really going to impact me from a liability perspective, obviously, and you too. Um, so instead of helping you to reduce your carbohydrate intake, I'm going to tell you to eat, you know, X amount of carbohydrates per day to offset the glucose lowering effects of your drugs so that we're nice and safe. And now I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong because you lows will kill you. But instead of using a drug and then adding, giving adequate carbohydrates, right? Why don't you just reduce the carbohydrates and hopefully not give the drug. And that's just, a, it's a totally different concept, but the physician looks at carbohydrate restriction often um, as risky from a liability perspective. So same thing with lifting weights and osteoporosis, right? Like if I told you to lift as hard as you can and you had a spine fracture, you could sue me. So I can't say that. So then it really, if you go back to what I just said, the number one thing you can do as a patient, be your own advocate and figure out, okay, how heavy can I lift? Because my doctor really, they don't know, right? There are no data to support any of these recommendations. So you really have to, um, you really have to figure out, okay, how heavy can I lift? What's my, you know, positioning posture look like? What's my starting point? And I do think starting with physical therapy because they do have the authority to kind of like put a stamp of like 20 pounds, 80 pounds, you know, like whatever that is. And they work with a trainer that can help you do it on a regular basis. Um, so there really is a pathway to maximize that. Yeah, that's kind of what I found. Well, I've worked with um, not necessarily necessarily people who have osteoporosis or really any kind of significant medical diagnosis, but they're older. You know, they're in mm -hmm. their 60s and 70s, and they want to start lifting weights. Um, what I kind of do is I just kind of phase them into it. It's like, okay, here's something like really light. Here's three pounds, you know, three pounds. Do those for X amount of reps. See how it works. You think you could do more? Well, let's try more. Five pounds. How's that feel? Do more? Well, let's try eight pounds. It's just kind of like just putting feelers out there. Right. Um, and just seeing like, you know, one, how it works in terms of form. You know, if, they're, if they look like they're really just struggling at it yeah, after just two reps, then that's too much. You have to see how that. And really, like, I talked about this with the last guest, is like, it's constant feedback. It's constant uh, reciprocation, communication. You know, they have to feel like comfortable enough to tell you that, no, I can't do that. Instead of just like plowing through it. You know, that's the best way I know of really yeah. kind of working with people, absent well, any real significant medical. It's diagnosis. so hard, right? Like, it's so hard to know because, again, if, if there were some kind of way to, to understand bone quality, and I guess there is a, you know, there are measures of bone quality. But even if you had uh, this study, so this study, I'll just put it out there for people if they want to try to look for it. It's called REMS from a company called Ecolite. REMS is R-E-M-S. 
it's an ultrasound study that will give you a T-score, like a DEXA, but it also tells you about bone quality. But let's say you had a REMS, right? And it says, oh, well, your bone quality is, you know, this objective number. There's there's no association of, okay, there's that number and now I can deadlift X pound. Like that doesn't exist. So how do you how do you do that? And it's really hard to do on your own. And I'm sure people do end up injuring themselves and having fractures doing this. But at the same time, if you do nothing, you know the problem's gonna get worse. So working with somebody to help you find that balance is really critical. Right, exactly right. And uh, more to that, that uh, idea about working with physical therapists, because I have worked with people who came to me and, you know, kind of prematurely, I think sometimes, without going to physical therapies, they had like a torn ACL or something like that. And just kind of, or maybe an injured ACL or whatever. So it just kind of like healed on its own or just kind yeah. of like, they dealt with it on their own. Now they're working with me and it doesn't really stop them from living. But they are, um, it's kind of a nagging problem. It's like, maybe you should think about at least going to a, getting a physical therapist referral and trying it out and seeing that working with me and working with a physical therapist, you can get the dual benefit. It can't hurt. So right. or maybe they just, this is often the case. They didn't have insurance at the time. So that wasn't right. economically feasible to really do that. That's another whole other issue. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's a, it, a lot of times it's a, it's a, it's a tight rope. You know? Yeah. And, it, and there is an element too of, of putting a little bit of risk out there and mm-hmm. saying, okay, well, if your starting point is zero, I mean, if you really haven't lifted a weight in the last 40 years, you're going to start really light and that's okay. Cause at least you're doing something. You know, if you, and I've seen patients actually that have, have jumped on, you know, the osteostrong equipment um, that's designed for osteoporosis and, and tried to do multiples of their body weight and had a fracture. So, I mean, it is possible even in that controlled environment to actually suffer an injury from doing this. But at the same time, again, if you do nothing, then it's, you know, it's going to get worse. And then instead of a fracture in a controlled setting, you, maybe you're going to have a hip fracture, a pelvis fracture, and that's going to potentially end your independence, which is ultimately, you know, the, probably the the biggest thing we want to try to prevent. Right. What do you think about, uh, I, I've seen hip fractures before, and I know they typically do lead um, to a death. Um, I kind of wonder why that is too. Is it just, is it just like a, a psychological sort of thing too? It's like my hip is broken. I can't move. And now I fall into this deep state of depression. And it just kind of like triggers a domino effect. Or is it something mm-hmm. more, is it more uh, physiological? Yeah, it, there's there are a lot of components, just like any cause of death, right? So, and if you look at the cause of death for all patients that have that die after within that twelve months after a hip fracture, you know they don't list hip fracture as the cause of death, right? So, if you look at cause of death, it's you know it is some other thing. But you think about what happens, you know, we consider in in orthopedics, hip fractures are either urgent or emergent. Really, they're kind of urgent, meaning that we want to get them done within twenty four to forty eight hours. You almost always operate on them unless somebody is so frail that they would would unlikely survive the operation. And the reason for that is I mentioned that, you know, the mortality rate for hip fracture is 30 percent. Well, the mortality rate for hip fracture treated without surgery within 12 months is 90 percent. So you've got to get the patients up. You've got to get them moving Um, because what happens is if they don't move in the age group that will suffer a hip fracture, typically. Um, if you aren't moving, if you're laying in bed, the likelihood of you developing something that will kill you like pneumonia, like a bed sore, like a UTI that becomes sepsis, like all of those things, those are the causes of death. 
So we got to get people up. We got to get them moving. Um, the people that struggle and end up dying later are the people that really just can't get mobilized. And typically it's not a surgical thing because we, we are really good at fixing hip fractures in a way that is stable. Um, and whether that's a, you know, fixation, a pens, a, you know, a partial replacement or a full replacement, our goal is to get people up and moving from an orthopedic surgery perspective. But sometimes, and this is where I think it's really important to be as strong as you can for as long as you can. If you don't have the physiological reserves, the muscle reserves, if you've gotten relatively frail, then when you have a fracture, and let's say it's not even a hip fracture, something I've seen this happen with tibia fractures, you know, lower leg fractures, even foot fractures, you knock somebody out of their routine and they don't have the, the metabolic reserves to handle that, they spiral downhill very, very quickly. So staying as strong as you can, being able to tolerate, you know, let's say, because a lot of times patients with hip fractures, let's say you, you fix them, but they can only put partial weight on their leg for whatever reason. They don't have the upper body strength to use, to use, I mean, probably not crutches, but at least a walker it still takes a fair amount of upper body strength. If you don't have that strength, guess what? You're in a wheelchair. It's really hard to transfer from a wheelchair to a bed. So then you're actually laying in bed most of the time. And that is what will kill you. So, um, yeah, it's having that metabolic reserve. And then for patients that don't have it, those are the ones that get in trouble. Scary stuff. Mm, yeah. Right. So, uh, Dr. Douglas, uh, we're starting to start to wind down here now. Um, so why I like to use a closing tradition on this uh, show is because we tend to talk about a lot of things in an hour. Mm -hmm. And so if we kind of summarize um, some of the things we talked about, we'll kind of just leave people with one thing to remember and only one thing to remember above all else. What do you say? Yeah, I think that my my one thing to remember is always to be an advocate for your own health. And whether or not we're talking about osteoporosis, diabetes, okay. uh, hormone optimization, you know, whatever it is, whatever you're battling, because we're all battling something, you have to understand that you are the only person that cares the most about what's going on. So be an advocate for your health. Absolutely. 100%. That is a great place to end it. Dr. Uh, Douglas Lucas, thank you so much for joining me on Monday. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Really appreciate it, buddy. And to everyone who's listening, um, all the uh, contacts and social media for uh, Dr. Douglas will be on the show notes, as you know. And you can also contact me at the email address that will be in there as well. Also, don't forget, um, if you want to become a sponsor of Fitness Reborn, where I can get more guests on like Dr. Douglas, um, that is on there as well. It's a you know, do as much as you want. There's no strings attached. You can cancel at any time. The link is in the show notes. Uh, Go take a look at it, and uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Any visibility that the show gets um, helps more than you know, and I really appreciate it if you are getting value out of this podcast. But until um, next time, uh, doc, this has been uh, the Fitness Reborn uh, Podcast. Uh, my name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training. And once again, Dr. Douglas Lucas, thank you again for your time. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Take All care. Right. Peace out, everyone. Until next time, move forever. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments, cancel anytime. Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. You never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.